The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Amen. You can be seated, please. And I'd like for you to go in your scriptures to Psalm 80. And as you do that, the children who are going to Children's Church can go as well out to that uh, wonderful teaching time where they eat and make stuff. And um, I'm checking just to make sure nobody goes that shouldn't be going. Like, uh, okay, Ray, you're staying put. Good. All right. Good. There you are. Um, Psalm 80 is titled uh, to the choir master according to lilies a testimony of asaph a psalm and i want to just uh, give a quick introduction uh, to the text because it will help us understand better uh, the sermon i hope Um, there were two asaphs that wrote psalms one during the reign of david and the other during captivity and this one seems to be written during captivity and some scholars believe that the title of the psalm is really to be according to lilies in the midst of thorns because the nations had come in and had taken israel into captivity and that will become apparent as i read the psalm for you and as we think about god's faithfulness Um, and you might want to keep that image in your mind a lily among thorns hear the word of the lord Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land, the mountains, were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its roots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. And we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The word of the Lord. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations 
of my heart be acceptable unto you, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Well, many years ago, uh, we, when Rhonda and I uh, lived in Florida, in central Florida, um, we would go to a wonderful state park, and we would go there during the really hot months. You know, it's a little humid today, a little warm today. Uh, they, they call this winter in Florida. Um, but uh, when, when, when really hot, oppressive months, we would go to Wakiva Springs State Park. I'm going to read you, and, and there's going to be a picture up there to show you what I'm talking about. You can visualize it. This is the description of Wakiva Springs State Park. With emerald springs feeding the Wakiva River and lush tropical hammocks, this state park is perfect for observing abundant wildlife, or cooling off on a hot summer day. Uh, let me tell you, those emerald springs were fresh, were very cold on a hot summer day, were paradise <laughs> to tube down or swim in. And as you floated along, you could see all the way to the bottom and the garfish would swim by. I only knew one kind of fish, and those were the garfish. And there were other fish, of course, and it was absolutely wonderful. It was so refreshing. It was so good. And the reason, of course, is that uh, they were spring-fed, which means a constant source of freshness, a constant source of renewal. And as we begin uh, this series on the three R's of retrieving and re being reproved and remaining in apostolic teaching, as we work our way through these ten psalms, I want to remind you that, um, you know, Wakaiba Springs, in a sense, is a, is a beautiful picture of the work of the Holy Spirit among us in renewal and constantly His work of refreshing and making things in our lives new, even when those things seem to be, you know, uh, brown and dry and, and, of course, very difficult. Um, you know, in this life, regardless of the challenges that we face, the Spirit has been poured out on us, and the Spirit is continuously filling us with life, abundant life. Jesus, the new wine um, that has been poured out, the Spirit then applying the life of Jesus into our lives. If we, as the Proverbs suggested, seek wisdom and walk in wisdom we get to appropriate then uh, the life-giving reality of God within us and even though there are weights and sins that oppress us we look to Jesus who lived with wisdom who was always filled with the spirit was always being made new always being made fresh and we find hope then for renewal in our lives and I want to remind you of something, and we hinted at this at the beginning in the call to worship from Psalm 89. Continuous spiritual renewal isn't something for this life alone. The Spirit has been given, and the Spirit will fill us forever. The earth will indeed be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea forever. And as we enter into the eternal fellowship with God one day in the new heavens and in the new earth, we will all then be able to, by God's grace, rightly relate to God. Can you imagine? I mean, we struggle with that today, right? We struggle with how do we relate to the holy God? 
Well, for all eternity, the Spirit filling us, we will rightly relate to God. We will rightly relate to the natural world within uh, which we live. This earth, not burned up and done away with, this earth made new. We are ushered into God's new creation, and we will rightly relate to the world in which we live. And then you and us, we're going to rightly relate to to one another, right? I mean, just imagine... You know, Ron and I spent the month of July mostly, like, with relatives, and that's okay. But the harder thing was, like, we were in the car together a lot. And Bruce Pratt this morning at the St. James service said, so, are you still married? (laughs) You know, or something like that. And I said, yeah, you know, we're doing better than we used to do when the kids were in the car. Um, But you know what? Um, We're going to, for all eternity, can you imagine relate rightly one with another because the spirit who is poured out but those that that hope also is for today i we should never say to ourselves oh we got to wait till then before we get the benefit no it is for today because jesus is the king today he's ruling over everything today in fact he's ruling over our lives he's ruling over over our church and we've got to keep this in mind because all of this then rests upon the faithfulness of God. And uh, as we keep the faithfulness of God in mind, it will fuel our worship and the work that we do in God's name. We are not doing any of this in vain. We are doing this with a great purpose to glorify God forever, to enjoy God forever, including now. But you have to ask some hard questions like the psalmist is asking here in Psalm 80, it's a song set in tears and and reproach, as the title suggests, a lily among thorns. And the situation Israel finds herself in, you know, presently in, as the psalmist writes, did you catch that phrase? They have to drink the bread of tears in full measure. That's a very difficult line, isn't it? Look at it in verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You, O Lord God of hosts, have fed them, that is your people, with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? And sometimes it hits very close to home. But this really then brings me to the central focus for this morning. Who is this God who does this? Who is this God of Psalm 80? The God who at the beginning uh, is the God of Israel, the one who is enthroned upon the cherubim, and yet he's a very personal God who shepherds his people like a flock of sheep. Who is this God that has a capacity, apparently, for anger, and yet, if his people turn towards him, his face will shine upon them and they will be saved? This God uh, has driven out the nations, and yet, he has the wisdom to know when to allow the nations to come in and afflict his people. Such is the God of Israel, and such is the God that we worship because He is one and the same God. 
There is no such thing, nor has there ever been any such thing as the God of the Old Testament, you know, that angry, contentious, capricious God of the Old Testament. And we get the God of the New Testament today. Uh, the word I just had in my mind I can't use. Um, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. It's unbiblical nonsense. He is the eternal, unchangeable God, and in His wisdom, He has revealed Himself to His people, both in times of blessing and in times of hardship, through His faithfulness, namely His covenantal faithfulness. The relationship between the God of covenantal faithfulness and His people is presented in Psalm 80 in the analogy of a vine. Did you pick that analogy up in verses 8 through 13? Like a vine, they were brought out of Egypt, and he, God did something. As he brings this vine out of Egypt, he plants them in the land inhabited by the nations. And the psalmist pictures that God himself is the one who clears the ground. That is, that God drives out the nations so the vine can take root and, and it can grow. And, and what you have in a you know, Reader's Digest form, if you will, uh, just condensed here is, you know, the story of, you know, the Exodus and all the way through Joshua when God, by a mighty and outstretched arm, brought his people out of captivity and into the land of promise. And so the psalmist is reminding his readers that God did, in fact, make good on the promise that he had made in covenant with Abraham and with Isaac, and with Jacob. Their descendants are now inhabiting the land that was promised. But all is not well. I have a vine in front of my house on a trellis, and I, I constantly do battle with the vine, because the vine has a mind of its own. It's set against me. The vine does not appreciate me, and uh, yet I keep the vine because I think it looks nice. And as I'm slaving away trying to manage this vine, I notice that there's, um, there's a bird nesting in that vine. And I want to be nice to the bird. So I don't just like cut the vine all apart. I, you know, I leave a little bit of shade for the bird because I'm not heartless. I, I love the bird. I love the vine. I'm just saying vines can be difficult. And it doesn't surprise us then of uh, the analogy that Israel was like a vine planted. And if it would have obeyed, it would have been blessed, but because it disobeyed, uh, it appears that God has lost regard for the vine he planted. The psalmist says the walls are broken down, strangers are plucking fruit from the vine, wild boars are ravaging it. It has become food for anyone who wants to eat from it. And so this raises some questions, doesn't it? It raises a question, well, well what does it mean? Has the God of covenant faithfulness lost his way? Has he lost his power? Has he changed his mind? And, you know, I find these questions to be profoundly important. And in some churches that I know and have been part of and throughout my life and in people that I've talked to, they, they don't want to deal with these harder questions. Who is this God? who would allow this sort of thing to happen. Uh, either the questions are altogether ignored, or people rush to an answer without really reflecting 
on the deeper implications of the, of the question. Which is why in this series, I am so set on retrieving apostolic teaching because apostolic teaching interprets psalms like this and answers questions like the one that the psalmist is raising. And it is vital for the church to retrieve the right answers to these questions, lest we just ignore the questions or we rush to the wrong answers or we come up with heresies like, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. We got the God in the New Testament. Lucky we who now get to you know, have our cake and eat it too. So what is the answer to the questions that the psalmist raises? Where is actual hope to be found when we feel abandoned or wonder if God will indeed ever shine his face on us again? Some might wonder, should we even be talking about continuous spiritual renewal in a time when global pandemic looms over us and there's so much division and anger and increasing division and anger even within the church? Shouldn't we be talking about something else? How dare we talk about continuous spiritual renewal? Should we? Yes. Yes, because it is within the work of the Spirit who continually renews us that we find the hope to move through the times when God, in His wisdom, brings the challenges, brings the trials, brings the hardships, however those things may present themselves. We live in a state of renewal as we give ourselves then to the work of the Holy Spirit who is always and ever going to renew us. The hope of all of this, of course, is hinted at in verse number 17 when the psalmist says, God, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And to help us to get to this hope and to understand what is meant by that and how we should then pull it forward and apply it in our lives, I need to do just a little bit of work from Genesis 11. Just a little bit of work. You see, the arrangement of Genesis 11, and I'd encourage you to go read it on your own later today, but the arrangement is very important. It's post-flood. The nations have grown. The nations have gathered and they decided on a human project called uh, the Tower, right? The Tower Project. And what was their project essentially about? They wanted to make a name for themselves. And so they're going to build a tower to reach into the heavens. They are going to do what God intends to do. They are going to bring heaven and earth together so that they might make a name for themselves. Now this all looks really good, except that God wasn't going to have anything to do with it. And God says a resounding no when he, and I I love, I I think I've got it right from the King James Version, he discomfits the languages or discomfits the tongues. Anything that gets discomfited by God (laughs) doesn't have much of a chance of standing. And so that's a really valuable lesson about the human project that says no to God and says we're going to do it our way it gets, it gets discomfited, right? We should, keep that, we should keep that in mind. So if you read that at the beginning of chapter number 11, you might go, oh man, like what hope is there? 
But then you get to the end of chapter number 11 and, and the writer introduces us to a man named Abram. And it is through Abram then that God enters into covenant and it is through Abraham's seed and the promise that God makes to Abram that heaven and earth are indeed going to be joined together. That the son of, he is going to make the son strong for himself. It is going to come through a promise made to a man named Abram. Beginning in Genesis 11, humans looked really impressive. We got a project, we're going to build a tower to heaven. God says, no, in fact, you can't even be able to understand each other. Discomfits their languages. And then it looks hopeless until you get to the end of the chapter. And there's Abram. Except it doesn't look all that impressive. Because Abram's father is named Terah. And the name Terah means wandering wild goat. And that just doesn't sound all that impressive. That I, I've come out of a wandering wild goat. And of course, as Terah tries to lead his family out of the idolatry of the Ur of the Chaldeans, one son dies, another son stays behind. Terah himself only makes it part of the way to Canaan, and he dies in Haran, and Abraham is left with just his wife and his nephew Lot. I mean, it just doesn't look all that impressive, right? But, but there's, there's even more, right? God promises Abram to make a great nation out of him, but guess what? Abraham and his wife Sarah can't produce one child. You see, when we get discouraged about the obstacles and the difficulties and the challenges, don't look to the human projects. Look to the divine, omnipotent God who says, I'm going to discomfit the human projects and I am going to work through a powerless man, my great power, I'm going to enter into covenant faithfulness with him. My faithfulness will endure through all generations. And my hand will be strong. Because it's going to be on the Son of Man that he is making strong for himself. So when Abram gets up to leave his father's house, his kindred, and he goes into the land that God is showing him, he indeed is going to be great. Now, now, I'm not giving you a brief history of Israel for the sake of history. I'm giving us our history. This is our history. This is biblical history that we live in and we share in. Just like there's not the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, there's not them and us. We are one now, made one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, our faith is apostolic, which means it is built on the law and the Psalms and the prophets. And what we were to read from Genesis 11 and 12 uh, find uh, their uh, place also in Psalm 80. And then as you pull it forward, you find in the life of Jesus as uh, the apostles begin to write and interpret Old Testament history into the church life, how we can attach ourselves to God's covenant faithfulness because the analogy of a vine doesn't just apply to Israel alone it applies to us it's what Paul said in uh, Romans 10 and 11 that uh, God is grafted in a wild vine and God is the tender of that vine I was thinking about 
a way to illustrate this and what might be the best illustration of it. And so I went to the parable that Jesus tells, uh, and, and Matthew records it, Mark records it, Luke records it, and it's not difficult at all to connect the dots between the story of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel in the Old Testament and how God will fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and how he will do it through Jesus. And so Jesus is going to tell a story to his people. The story includes a, an owner who has a vineyard and he leases out his vineyard to tenants. But over a, a period of time, the tenants become, they become very greedy. And they want to take the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. The owner who is in a faraway country sends servants a servant back to the vineyard to collect the, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants take the servant and they beat him and they send him away. And the, the owner sends another one and they beat him and they send him away. And another one comes, they beat him and they send him away. And finally the owner of the vineyard says, oh, I know what I do. I will send them my much-loved son. They will respect him. Now Jesus is telling the story to, the, to his people. And uh, he, he says then that when the much-loved son arrives at the vineyard, the tenants look and they say, there's the heir. Let's take him. Let's kill him so that the vineyard can be ours. And then Jesus asks the question, what is the owner to do? What is the owner to do? And the response is, he is to come himself and take these tenants and destroy them and give the vineyard to others. And then as Jesus often would do, he would stop. And he said, have you not ever read the scripture? And he quotes for them Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Why is Jesus speaking this way to his people? Well, the answer to that question is actually found if you were to read between the lines of the song that the young virgin who would be the mother of Jesus sang when she said, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. You see, Mary had a very high view of God's faithfulness. Because God was ready and he sent his son to collect the fruit of the vineyard. But the son was rejected. He was harshly rejected. But once again, we see the covenant faithfulness of God doing something in a way that absolutely obliterates human power. You see, the Jews assumed that Jesus was weak because Jesus refused to join the building of another Tower of Babel, a religious tower even. Jesus says he's not going to have any part of that. But what those Jews could not see was how God was using what was weak to confound the mighty and what seemed foolish to confound the wise. Just as a childless man is promised descendants as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seas, and those descendants do come, and, the, and as a vine they begin to flourish, but 
because of their sin and rebellion, they're being ravaged. The psalmist looks to God. He looks to the God of Israel and he says, Oh God, place your hand on the man of your right hand. Well, who is that man? It's Jesus. The son in the parable that Jesus told. Jesus is the one that the, he's the stone that the builders rejected. And it is through that weakness, it is through that rejection then that a marvelous thing has happened. God's covenantal faithfulness shines forth through not only the rejection of Jesus, but through the salvific work that Jesus then is going to do in redeeming his people. It is indeed a marvelous thing that the Lord has done. You see, what the psalmist couldn't yet grasp was the wisdom of God. For the God of covenantal faithfulness was willing to let the nations ravage the vine so that God would ultimately gain victory over the nations, but not in the way that humans wanted it to be done. It would be done through the means of his servant, his son. God indeed would have his hand on the son that he has made strong for himself. And, and we have to ask the question then, how strong is that son? He is strong enough to become weak. How weak? Well, the son would be born of a woman, born under the law. He would be strong enough to live in complete obedience to that law and yet embrace the weakness of death as he bears the sins of his people. If you think about the questions that are raised in Psalm 80, we would have to ask, well, when did God stop feeding his people with the bread of tears? And the answer to that, of course, is when Jesus took those tears on himself, when he drank the cup of God's judgment in full measure, it was only then that the people would be able to stop drinking from the cup of tears. You see, God did stir up his might. God did come to save his people. God did shine his face upon them. But it came through Jesus. It came through Jesus becoming an object of contention. It came when Jesus became scorned by God's enemies. When Jesus was cut down and perished at the rebuke of his father. As his father turns his face away. And we can take heart in this great news, in this good news, in this good reality, because the enemies of God will no longer run roughshod over God's people. Because Jesus has been made strong. And God has showed his faithfulness to us through Jesus, which is why we must always look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So as I close, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to remain in the things that I have retrieved for us this morning. Things that we have perhaps forgotten about the God of covenantal faithfulness. We live in a time of towers being built when people want to give answers for all the complexities that the world faces. And the church must stand always against the towers of human ingenuity 
and human power. And we must be drawn into the faithfulness of God through the Savior Jesus, the one who has been made strong. Well, how do we do that? Three times in Psalm 80, a a phrase is repeated. And any time you have something being repeated, you really need to pay attention to it. Verse number 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You see how they, they build up in intensity. Restore us, O God, verse 3. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Verse 18, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. This is the great hope of the psalmist. It is rooted centrally in this God of covenant faithfulness. The psalmist pleads with God, stir up your might, come and save us. But he prays for God to restore. Now, I think a better translation for the word restore that I have in the English Standard Version is actually the word to turn. To turn. You know, generally, when we think of restoration, you might think of a table, you're going to restore, finish it, it's going to maybe look newer than it did in the previous state. But what the psalmist is really driving at is a a double meaning. He wants God to turn them, and as God turns them, the hope is that God will turn to them. And this is the great hope of the gospel for us today. Is God turning you to him with the hope then that God will turn to you? And of course, God will. God always will. This is the promise he has made. And he will be faithful to his promise. This is the good news of salvation. That it is through our own repentance. Our own turning from sins. This great gift that God gives as he convicts us over our sins. Over our waywardness. Over our vine-like tendencies. Right? He turns us to him. And we always have the hope then that God is turning himself towards us. The promise of covenantal faithfulness rooted in Jesus is the place we start and we stay on through this journey of continuous spiritual renewal. A journey, once again, it will have no end. So who is this God of Psalm 80? He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who has been revealed to us through His Son, Jesus. He is the God who is filling us today with new life and hope and peace. He is the God we are to give all our worship and adoration towards and we are to serve with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the faithful God. Now on a day like today, I wish I were in central Florida near Wakaiva Springs because I'd be in it. I, I would just go in. Maybe I just should go up to Lake George. Do the same. It's incredibly refreshing, right? To have some cold thing on you, in you, on a, on a hot, humid summer day. Oh, church, let me remind you. 
that the God of covenant faithfulness is the unchangeable, eternal force of something far more refreshing than cold water on a hot day. It is through His eternal Spirit that He is filling us right now with His life-giving presence and will fill us forever. And how can we be confident of that? If we will retrieve the teaching that has been given to us by the apostles, if we will be reproved by that teaching, responding to it with sensitive hearts filled with repentance, and if we will remain in that teaching. Lest we get tempted to start looking at the human projects for our help and our hope. Praise God for His faithfulness to us. Father, we give You thanks right now And as we um, quietly now come before you to pray and to prepare ourselves for your table, I pray that we might find grace and mercy to help us in time of need. Let's be quiet before the Lord and let him speak his word into our lives. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeetown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.